On this episode of AvTalk, we welcome back the Air Current Editor-in-Chief, John Ostrauer, for a wide-ranging conversation as we try to understand the effects of the novel coronavirus on the aviation industry. We also look at the state of the 737 MAX and the prospects for the aircraft's return to service one year after the crash of Ethiopian Flight 302 and a year into its worldwide grounding. Hello and welcome to episode 79 of AvTalk. I am Ian Pechnik here as always with Jason Urbinowitz. Hi, Ian. Hello, Jason. And today we have joining us a a special guest on the program who has joined us before when we feel lost in the woods, here to provide some clarity in a time of mass confusion, the Air Currents Editor-in-Chief, John Ostrauer. John, thank you so much for joining us. Always good to be with you guys. Thanks. So we've asked you to talk with us today about a couple things. We're recording on Tuesday, the 10th of March, which marks one year since the crash of Ethiopian 302. The podcast listeners will first hear it on Friday, the 13th, which will mark one year of the worldwide grounding of the 737 MAX. And all of this sits in the background of perhaps the the greatest crisis to hit the aviation industry since 9-11, which is to say that the expansion or or continued spread of the the novel coronavirus has made for some very difficult times. So there's a lot to talk about. Yeah, you could say that. I mean, you could probably summarize it in just what the hell happened since the last time we talked, because it's a lot. And that's why we have John Ostrower here to help us at least attempt to break down what the hell just happened. So I thought where we could start is two weeks ago and kind of catch up to where we are in the current climate, what's happened with airlines since then, because things have happened quickly. Airlines have cut capacity, routes have been cut, waivers have been issued, all sorts of things. Airlines have ceased to exist. Airlines have ceased to exist. And then we'll take a break later on in the program and then come back and, and kind of discuss the 737 MAX and Boeing writ large. So let's catch up on the past few weeks. Jason, when you and I last sat down to record a podcast, we were talking about things looked like they were going to get a bit worse. It looked like there were some cancellations on the horizon. China was down roughly 80%, but things were starting to improve and actually have since improved as far as traffic in China is concerned. Now down roughly 61% on the year versus 80 to 85%. So those things kind of all happened. But what also happened was a rapid spread of the virus to places like Iran and Italy. Now, Italy is basically on quarantine. The country is on quarantine. Airlines like Lufthansa are cutting capacity by 50%. Qantas is parking most of its A380s. Lufthansa is doing the same. US airlines are drawing down capacity. So, So things have escalated and the impact on the aviation industry has certainly become much more dramatic. And that's 
where John steps in to offer some some context. And I know, John, you've been thinking about some parallels, not only to the SARS outbreak in 2002, 2003, but also 9-11 as far as a shock to the aviation system. So I wanted to hear a little bit more about that and, and what your thinking is as far as the parallels that we're seeing. Can we Can we draw some conclusions based on past events here, or is it too soon to tell? On, on the one hand, it is too soon to tell. I think that's. I think we are still very much in the slide here. I don't think we are close to bottom yet. And I think that as things unfold, you know, certainly we've seen outside of China, obviously Japan, South Korea, Iran, Italy, as this has taken hold, and now increasingly in the United States, you know, we're seeing this as sort of layers of impact. Obviously, China went first. Uh, the Asian carriers more broadly after that. You saw European flights begin to to drop off. Then you see transatlantic, and then you see transpacific, and then you see North America and North American domestic. I think we're just at the beginning of sensing how, what that actually looks like. Certainly in the case of 9-11, it was a single event, right? It was a single day when the U.S. the you know, US air traffic system was shut down for several days. When it came back, people were afraid to fly. In other parts of the world, flying continued unabated, but people also, but there was a, a larger drop both in terms of people being afraid and also because of the economic impact as people stayed home and, and businesses didn't invest and, 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 and just and retrenched. This is going to be a multi-phase thing and it's going to unfold piece by piece here, region by region as it's affected. And I think certainly what we've seen so far, like you said, JetBlue, United, American, Delta, Everyone is, is is pulling back in the U.S. and really beginning to to reassess and take stock about what happens when air travel is not only not needed because business travel and large gatherings are canceled or considered non-essential, but also the fear and the concern that aircraft are actually a vector for uh, not only a vector for the disease, but you know you might be concerned that someone might be sitting next to or near someone who on the plane who is infected. So you've got these dynamics colliding into one another. And again, I, we are truly seeing a you know, something that we have not certainly witnessed since 9-11 in terms of the, the speed of the, of the drawdown. But like I said, it's going to take a while for us to find a bottom. And I think there are still lots of questions. I'm not an epidemiologist. I have spoken with a lot of them in the last, last week, uh, a lot of statisticians in the last week to understand how this plays out mathematically. And there are a lot of factors, variables in this that we don't yet understand. You know, how long are they contagious for? And ultimately, after they have coronavirus or uh, COVID-19 in this case, how long are they immune from getting it again? And in terms of how long does that last? And, you know, we get the, the common cold every every year, potentially. You know, you don't get it immediately afterwards because you build up an immunity have, after having the virus. So the question is, how long does this last and how soon can you get a vaccine that addresses this? So there are so many different factors at play here. And I think that, again, we're, we're still at the very, very beginning of this. And certainly I'm, in, I'm sitting in Seattle where there is a live outbreak here. And increasing concerns about its economic impact, its impact on, on daily life. So it's not clear what the impact on, on, on things like schools, any kinds of, ga any kinds of larger gatherings, larger gatherings are actually 
out. But in terms of schools and when kids being home and the disruption that that that, that inherently brings for their parents who are who are working or, or can't get childcare. So you see kind of this snowballing effect economically that I don't think we've fully taken stock of in terms of what that means for actually stopping the spread of this thing. It's still early days is, is sort of the the short answer. One of the questions that's been on my mind is, is this too piecemeal? Is this not cautious enough? Are we seeing not enough done at this point? I mean, I, I know we're we're still, you know, still trying to understand how the disease spreads and and you know who it affects and how it affects people. But would it be easier and and I don't know the answer to this, which is why I'm positing you the question, would it be easier to just stop and just say we're gonna stop now instead of having to figure out when we're going to stop? I don't know the answer to that question. Certainly, there are a lot of people asking that exactly that question. Certainly, I mean, what does it take to turn off an economy? And and, and an economy with a little e, right? You know, it's like it's it's everything from public transit to mass transit, whether it's airplanes, whether it's you know you, you know certainly cruise ships. You look at all these factors and what it would take to put effectively the, an economic system as interconnected and as reliant on different pieces. We're not an agrarian society anymore in the United States, right? You know, that, that would, people don't have the ability to grow their own food and, and live in their own, in their own homes for an extended period of time without needing to access the outside world. I mean, that's just not the way our society is set up, period, end, end of story. So the question is, how do you draw that down? And I think there, there are certainly those, you know, there are a lot of very smart people asking that question, and I don't have the answer. But certainly, if you want to arrest the spread of a of a disease, a contagious disease, that is certainly one option. And the question is, do you wait till after or do in the run up to do that? Or do you wait till it's gotten considerably worse? And you say, well, no, okay, you know, now we have to get serious about this in terms of, you know, literally a pause on things. And this is a different question, right? These are much bigger societal questions than just the 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 impact on on aviation and air travel. You know, certainly shutting down the US air travel. I mean, it's it's I'd say it's unprecedented, but it's actually not, right? This that's that's where the parallels come in. You know, you go back to 9/11. We we did shut it down. Right, that's what I'm saying. I mean, we we have precedents for this. I mean, we we've done it before, certainly under very different circumstances, and post 9/11, no one knew if we would fly again. I mean, in those first days, nobody knew what was next. This would have a goal, and so you know. To me, I've been thinking about these things, and especially in the past couple of days, where the degree to which the you know the disease has spread and how quickly and how widely. At what point does that start making sense? I mean, airlines are are cutting you know twenty percent, three percent, five percent. You know, it varies depending on where they fly and who, who, you know how much they fly. But is that even a realistic? thing to do in an orderly fashion. I mean, it's one thing to say, everyone get out of the sky, but is it realistic to say, okay, we, we need to wind down in an orderly fashion? That's, a, that's, a, <laughs> that's interesting. Is, is it easier to flip a switch and say everyone on the ground right now, or is it easier to say, no, no, we're actually going to draw down slowly? That's a great question. I mean, the, the, the irony is you'd expect that it, it would be easier to draw down slowly, right? You know, if, but you know, the, certainly the psychological element is that, well, you, know, you can't touch, feel, smell, taste, 
this virus around you. And, and so people think, oh, you know, there's a, there, I think people, you know, contend in, in some respects that, you know, that would be an overreaction or that that would be, you know, impulsive or rash. And, and right now I, I don't, I, I don't, I don't know the answer to that question. But certainly, you know, in a, in a system as interconnected as aviation, I mean, you are dealing with fewer players than you were at the time of 9-11, right? We're down to 10 major airlines and th- that you would have to sort of dr- do that kind of drawdown. You're turning off the United States air travel system, it's almost unthinkable. Like, was it, But like I said, again, we, we do have that precedent from 9-11. The answer is I think there's a chance that that we may find out one way or another. As this thing unfolds, I mean, certainly when you look at what the numbers look like in Italy and Iran, uh, and I think a lot of public health experts are looking at the U.S. response somewhere in that tier, that's a that's a really troubling dynamic as far as what it does to to the U.S. And I, I, for as far as air travel, we don't know, but certainly I, I think this is going to be an, a, a a year without precedent in a lot in a lot of respects. I think. Potentially even, again, given that kind of multi-layer hit to demand to operations, has the potential to be worse than 9-11 in, 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 some, in some cases, depending on different, different scenarios. But because we don't know when this bounces back or how this bounces back. SARS was sort of the baseline uh, for understanding it back in 2003 when it sort of hockey pucked its way, you know, hit the bottom and then kind of bounced right back up when, when uh, the weather got warmer and SARS was fantastically well-contained comparatively. So, you know, there are models that people are using, but again, what is the right model as you try to plan an airline and plan an airline operation, plan a business? And again, you know, I talked to one, one planner uh, earlier in the week. I said, what, what are you using for your recovery scenario? He said to me, we don't have one, at least not yet, is what he said. And so here we are. And we're, you know, it, it's, it's, it's Tuesday after probably eight, nine days of, of this really taking hold in the, in the U.S. And I think we can safely sit here and say eight, eight or nine days from now, no one's really sure which direction this goes. Does the curve break or does it continue to, to climb in, in, in its current trajectory? So it, a lot of very, very, very important questions that we find ourselves in right now. John, you, you brought up the fact that we have fewer airlines now than we did 20 years ago. That's a whole separate podcast. But but dealing with it in this specific context, how much of what we're seeing as far as airlines in trouble is just an acceleration of the inevitable you know i'm i'm looking at in what would have been much more of, of a headline story in any other episode of this podcast flybe going out of business certainly they were in trouble already they had already been rescued at least once depending on how you want to count rescues but they're gone uh, other airlines have gone very recently. And there are others that may not make it through. And then there's Alitalia, which will be just fine no matter what. Um, you know, <laughs> Forever and always. So it, how, how much of this is just, it was going to happen. This is just what pushed things over the edge. It's a really great question. And I think that there are a few different ways to look at this. Someone made a really good point to me in an interview I, uh, I did earlier, uh, later last week, is that, so, you know, when you talk about these alien carriers, what it sounds like economically what you're talking about is that in the same way that those who have, you know, whether either are suffering from pre-existing conditions and aren't well to begin with are more vulnerable to succumbing to COVID-19. 
And I said, exactly. That airlines that, that weren't strategically healthy to begin with are ultimately going to be significantly more vulnerable than those who are strong when a downturn comes. The, the aviation economy imitates life in that regards. And so you look at that and say, okay, well, we are going to lose airlines. They're absolutely 100% going to lose airlines. The, you know, we, we will probably lose more in Europe, probably see a wave of consolidation, potentially carriers in, in Asia. The U.S. airline industry is a lot healthier than it was, certainly 20 years ago, certainly even more than 10 years ago. You know, balance sheets are, are a lot more solid. The discipline amongst the carriers is, is certainly increased as things have been co- consolidated. There has also been a still a, lot, a, a fair amount of growth and a huge number of, of airplanes coming into the United States and new routes. And, and what you certainly see is the force of the low-cost carriers in full in the last 10 years. You've got Spirit and Frontier, uh, certainly always Southwest pulling down, you know, the, the pressure on fares. And so, you know, certainly the U.S. industry is more prepared for a downturn. That's not to say that they're impervious to a downturn. Um, you know, these are strategic businesses to the United States. You know, American United and Delta are pillars of the of the U.S. air transportation system, which people will complain about, you know, the, the state of, of, of U.S. air travel, uh, rightly or wrongly, but they are strategic industries that are central to an economy and central to to the, the lifeblood and functioning of, of a nation. So they, they are, just in the same way that the airlines received a bailout after 9-11, they will potentially, depending on how this plays out, this will, may happen you know, in, in 2020, depending on how bad things get. But there were airline bankruptcies after 9-11, certainly. And there was a massive wave of consolidation that came with it. It's not crazy to think that there could be further consolidation of an already consolidated industry out of necessity for preserving as many jobs and the structure of, of U.S. air transport as humanly possible. Now, I feel like I've been making the same joke for a, a couple of weeks or months now that in, in 2025, all airlines will be owned by Lufthansa Group or IAG or, or Delta. And it, it kind of seems like this is accelerating that process. I hope that's not the reality, but it, it really is kind of seeming like that's not actually a joke anymore, is it? Well, you know, look, I, I think they're, they're, we're, going, we're seeing fewer and fewer players. And I think that – let's go back to 9-11 for a second. And this is something that we actually just looked at in an article we published on Tuesday. That, you know, a lot of the trends that were that were in place were significantly, significantly accelerated by 9-11. Whether it was industry consolidation, whether it was the growth of low-cost carriers, whether it was the decline in in fares and yields. And that really, that really was a was a huge force to realign the the aviation industry in the US. And, you know, looking at that, all of this stemmed from what happens to business travel after on the other side of this? I mean, look, Jason, you're working from home right now. I, you know, I work at home already. That's that the, the air current is, is out of is out of my home. And a lot of businesses, I mean, I, I quoted someone in, in, in a story I wrote at the end of last week whose company has five to 10 business class and premium economy seats back and forth between Boston and Hong Kong every week. And they've stopped doing it. These aren't client meetings. These are not going face to face, you know, shaking hands with customers. This is business operations and supply chain type functions, which are a huge part of the uh, the business travel ecosystem. And they just simply stopped. And what they realized is that they can do the same job with either significantly less travel or do it in almost entirely digitally. It's harder, but 
it's also a lot cheaper. So same thing, like you mentioned at my company, uh, we were told today, actually no travel as of today, unless it's absolutely essential. So I can't even go to our corporate headquarters if we need to, for some reason. So this is quite real to me. Exactly. Exactly. And so the question is, I I asked the question, will business travel come back? And the answer is yes, business travel will come back. The question is, how does it come back? What does it look like for this business where you, you see what is effectively a, a strategic shift that you know has forced airlines to 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 adapt. And you look at 9/11, and we actually looked at the data. And uh, my colleague Courtney Miller went into it and he said, "Okay, so you know what happened to premium fares? You know the premium fares that business travelers were were spending on for first and business class travel. And what happened? Well, they disappeared. And on an absolute basis, the the number of passengers that would pay that five hundred five hundred dollar threshold didn't come back until 2012 and adjusted for inflation it's never come back in terms of the the hitting a uh, a threshold of a certain number of, of passengers per day that that will pay for a premium t- a ticket so there was a permanent effect and a lot of that was again the inflection point was 911 again deeply deeply accelerated by by things like extra legroom and economy low cost carriers increased digital teleconferencing you see a lot of these forces at play here and the question is, does coronavirus and its global impact represent another similar inflection point where th- that trend ultimately, does that begin to hit business class travel across the Atlantic, for example? Is there just a new normal in what people are willing to pay to get back and forth? I mean, look at what JetBlue has already you know, declared that they want to do in terms of you know, Boston and, and New York to London on the, on the 321. So you see these forces taking hold. The question is, does this mark another, like 9-11, an acceleration point for, for these trends? And certainly the data after 9-11 suggested that that definitely was an acceleration point. So we've gone, I mean, really in a little over a month from an industry that hasn't seen a downturn in a few years Passenger numbers have been strong. Cargo numbers were expected to be better than they were last year. To some smaller cargo operations have shuttered. Airlines are not flying passengers, but are looking, you know, Cathay said that they're looking to fly cargo only on their passenger aircraft on some routes. You've got airlines that that are canceling services that are using larger planes instead of more frequent services they're using smaller planes where they would normally have a single service because there just aren't that many at what point do airlines run out of levers to pull well at some point i mean the, the in, in the background here is also a, a massive collapse in the price of oil and that is absolutely unequivocally a short term benefit unless you're hedged which and then it's a very expensive very very expensive headache in terms of expecting where the price of oil is going to go. The levers, the size of the levers change, right? So I'm, I'm thinking of the, the, this answer in a few different ways, but there is the large scale lever, which is, okay, you can either down gauge airplanes, you park in 380s using, um, you know, smaller airplanes on, on, on longer routes and so on and so forth. And then there's the question of, okay, just cutting capacity altogether. And there is a point where the, I'm, I'm sure there's a, there's a, a a calculation that says, okay, is it cheaper just to put the put things on hold in certain regions or whatever than versus you know flying empty? 
you know, it's, it's, it's interesting. So one of the, one of the, one of the levers that I think is hanging out there right now that I think is, has an interesting environmental impact is the idea that IATA, the International Air Transport Association, has been calling for a relaxation on slot rules. So essentially, you have certain slots that that are assigned to an airline to, to about when they can arrive and depart at, at an airport. And if you don't use those slots, you, you, you lose those slots. And I believe it's about 80% utilization of those slots uh, before they're taken back. There are airplanes flying right now in the air just to preserve slot reservations at various airports around. That is not an environmentally friendly or responsible use of, a, of an airplane economically or environmentally. So, I mean, that's going to be one of the big levers that I think is going to give some, give some relief where it says, you will no, you don't have to keep flying and, you know, you preserve your cash and preserve your operation and, and don't burn that fuel if you don't need to, even if it's cheap, don't burn it. So again, there are still a lot of levers to pull. The question again, like you said, how long are they and, and how many are left? I think uh, at some point the decision may not be up to airlines themselves. Uh, you know, I think, like I said, if we if we've seen the the spread, largely we haven't seen. You know, we've seen travel bans from U.S. to China, which has obviously forced a significant reduction in, in flights between between the two countries. But you know, at what point do, does the government say, okay, well, no one from X country can fly to Y country? Or that it's, you know, only, you know, within Italy, actually, they're actually down to essential travel only. And I'm not sure how that's manifesting operationally, but certainly, eventually, the decision may be out of the hands of, of the airlines to, to decide when or where they fly. So are we getting to the point where we're at the end of, of the modern golden age of travel, which I really kind of feel like we were in, where flying to the other end of the world, at least in economy, on a whole bunch of airlines was super cheap and you could do it on a whim. Are we looking at the potential end of that or or will it come back? You know, the nice thing about air travel, and I think there are, there is ample evidence to back up this statement, is that air travel is very elastic. If you lower the price, people will fly. The price of a ticket greatly affects demand. These are two different questions, right? Like number one, there needs to be the conditions in place where people feel comfortable flying. So, you know, not widespread outbreaks of COVID-19 in various regions, but also feeling like they economically can fly themselves. So a lot of the big levers that we're going to see is in the next several months, we're probably going to see, assuming that airlines continue operations in this kind of the same levels that there are today with these new cut, cuts in capacity included, there's going to be a lot of cheap, t- cheap flying about. I mean, you're going to be able to get around the U.S. and probably the world. I mean, I was looking at a ticket to London this summer for the same week as the the Farnborough Air Show, an economy that was sub five hundred dollars, and nonstop from Seattle. That's incredible. It's usually this far out is probably you know eleven or twelve hundred dollars, depending on the airline, and it was under five hundred. So. On the one hand, we might be heading into a golden age of even cheaper travel. But again, it's really a question of of resetting people's expectations on where they can fly and how much they should pay. So is the is the golden age over? I don't know the answer to that. But certainly when you shock the system like this, you can't help but but have lasting impacts in terms of number one, your choices, who who survives this but also what it costs to get there on the other side of it and what it costs to actually get people back flying again. 
And you're definitely right, as airfares, at least from New York to Europe through the next several months, uh, the rest of March, April, May, um, if you want to fly to Portugal through Lisbon, you're looking at $268 round trip from New York to pretty much anywhere in Europe, which is insane. I'm having trouble processing just how cheap these tickets are right now just to get people on planes and flying and get some revenue in. But that seems unsustainable. So today, Scott Kirby of United Airlines said that he thinks there's going to be government intervention. And John, you mentioned at some point, the issue is taken out of the airline's hands. What type of government intervention are we looking at? Cash injections, debt relief? I mean, what what types of things and and I'll expand this kind of globally because really like we've talked about the US airlines are in a much different position now than they were, you know, 20 years ago, but a lot of European airlines and a lot of Asian airlines are in a much more precarious position. Well, certainly in the US I think I think I think on all of the above in terms of what you what you said. You know, like I said the these are strategic assets of the United States. I mean, if there was significant consolidation amongst the amongst airlines it would most likely look something like everyone underneath of Southwest. I don't think in, in, in normal circumstances, the- You mean everyone smaller than Southwest, not everyone becoming Southwest. Not everyone becoming I want, Southwest. I, I just, no, want, to, no, I just no, no, want to be no. clear on that. Yes, exactly. Smaller than Southwest. And and you know, you know, you look at you know United Delta, American, and Southwest, and that's 80 something percent of the entire US domestic market. Or entire U.S. aircraft airline market. So, what happens to everyone under, un, you know, smaller than than that? I mean, again, these hypotheticals. You know, do you see Hawaiian, Alaska, and JetBlue all get together? Do you see Frontier and Spirit get together? Do you see Allegiant and Sun Country get together? I mean, you know, there, there are these interesting combinations that you can think of. But the one aspect I'm I'm really curious about is that a lot of airplanes, certainly amongst the the majors. Are actually leased. They're leased airplanes, some more than others. American does a lot of aircraft leasing. If an airplane isn't flying, it's not generating revenue. It's not. It's ultimately not paying for itself in some respects. I mean, I'm I'm I'm, I'm jumping a few steps here, but you look at at a, a financial sector that is counting on rents from leased airplanes, and if the U.S. carriers get into any U.S. carriers get into significant financial trouble, will those airplanes be potentially repossessed if those payments aren't made? Will the payments be made on behalf of the airline by the United States government as sort of a backstop financing? I, but again, I think this gets to the core of the different type of structure of the U.S. airline industry today in 2020, and and what the possible levers look like. There there are market ways to do this in terms of, you know, restructuring in chapter 11 and so forth. And then there's equity infusions and, and, and so on and so forth. I mean, we lost a huge, huge, huge number of airline jobs after 9-11. Huge. The reality is the, the U.S. is a much bigger country than it was 20 years ago. And certainly, you, you look at, you know, that dynamic and you ask, okay, so what does that look like? How tenable would that be? But the U.S. needs an air transport system, period. And what is the U.S. willing to pay to preserve that? Should things get really, really, really bad here, there is no doubt that there is a there is a price. There's a price tag that that you know people are trying to understand what that looks like. Right now, 
as we record this on Tuesday afternoon, March 10th, we don't know what the answer is and what that looks like. So, I mean, I think the, you know, the, the one thing we, we find ourselves in is just more uncertainty. And certainly we're not going to, to, to know how this plays out for probably several months at the least. So looking forward, we kind of really began seeing effects the third week of January. It's the second week of March. Let's say end of March, what are you keeping an eye on? What do you think are some of the most important things to look for that if this happened, you would be relieved? If that happened, you would be even more worried? Certainly a a secession in the number of new cases. That's that's an obvious one. For for aviation, you don't want to see furloughs. You don't want to see layoffs. You know, you want to see a preservation of of, of the workforce because there already is <laughs> the the irony of all of this is that there was a pilot shortage uh, that was very much ongoing in this country and globally. So you, they are a precious resource to any airline, and with the assumption that things will will bounce back. And no one's sure of what that shape is right now, that those are personnel that are going to be needed unequivocally. So the question is, how do you, how do you hold on to your workforce uh, and how do you preserve that? And so those are the big things that I'll be, I'll be watching for. The other big one is, is the state of credit markets. As people start to worry about the overall economy and airlines or whether it's aerospace suppliers or just business in general, drawing on additional debt to run their business. What does that do to credit markets? And if credit markets get tight and if credit markets begin to, to, to worry about that, and, and you know, we saw this in 2008, when what happens when credit markets begin to get shaky? You call it, it was the global financial crisis. And so what happens when, when lending can't happen? And that's when you start to get into a really, really worrisome spot beyond aviation, but in terms of the global financial system and its ability to adapt to a lack of demand within an, within an overall economy. So those are the things that I'm, I'm certainly watching for, but you know, things that I, I don't want to see, you know, it's, you don't want to see, you know, large scale layoffs, you know, airplanes can sit like airplanes can sit and they just, just don't fly them and you save money by not flying them. You know, certainly labor stability, hopefully is going to be a priority here. For a lot of these, a lot of you know carriers and 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 the aviation ecosystem generally, and you know, I would certainly that's something that I know a lot of people, well beyond myself, are are, are hoping to see here as we get deeper into the, the disruption. I think we should leave this particular crisis for the moment. Let's take a quick break, and then let's come back, and we'll take ourselves back to a year ago and then catch up on where we are now with the 737 MAX and some of the reports and news that has come out this week. So we'll be right back. Welcome back. We're, we're shifting gears now to discuss one year on from the the crash of Ethiopia in 302, when the podcast comes out on Friday and you're listening to it, it will have been a year since the 737 Max last flew a revenue passenger, and a lot has happened in the past week alone. The U.S. House of Representatives released their report on Boeing's 
overall, uh, I would say it was more of a report on culture than a report on any particular one particular instance of, of anything related to the 737 MAX. But then Ethiopian authorities also released a rather interesting preliminary report because it included conclusions, which is unusual for a interim or preliminary report. So that's where we kind of pick up the thread. And John, I was hoping you could I guess, in a compressed environment, bring us up to speed on, on kind of where the 737 MAX stands today, one year on. So yeah, it's, it's been a year, which is wild to, to contemplate. You know, in the last year, or I should say in the last two and a half months, Boeing has replaced its leadership in, in, in a few very key positions. They've got a new CEO, Dennis Mullenberg, was fired at the end of December. And David Calhoun is the new CEO, had having been on the board of directors since 2009, was the lead director of the company. I mean, his job very much is get the Max back in service. And what we've seen is sort of a, a drumbeat of, of tasks that have to be accomplished for Boeing to get the airplane back in service. Uh, you know, we've seen various software revisions that, that have been required. There's, you know, there was a an indicator light that they needed to fix. There was a wiring issue that was outstanding, which looking like they're going to have to actually make a physical change to the wiring of the airplane now before you can actually get to a certification flight, which then moves toward approving the training and approving all of the, the things that need to happen uh, on a regulatory front to get the airplane back going again. And at the end of last year, or so the beginning of this year, Boeing reset that to an expectation that they think they have the airplane back in service by mid-2020. So that would have the grounding stretch, you know, almost 18 months, depending on how you count, depending on your definition of mid, but certainly the m most recently uh, required change in wiring to the airplane, which we don't know for, for certain is going to happen, but there's been some reporting from the Wall Street Journal recently saying that, yes, in fact, the, the proposal to leave the wiring where it was, was not acceptable. And just for some quick background, very, very quick background on that. There was a concern that there could be a short circuit within wiring that may cause uncommanded motion of the horizontal stabilizer. There has been, that's never happened in service before. This is a lot of this is being done by analysis and looking at what that looks like, but it ultimately the current design doesn't conform to regulations and regulators are not in, an, in a mood to let Boeing put a, an airplane back out there that does not meet every regulation, every applicable regulation as they stand right now. So things are still in limbo. There are, you know, there are 350 something airplanes that are owned by airlines that are still on the ground. There are another 420 that were, that have been built since last March and have been sitting waiting to deliver. And those are spread across Boeing sites all over the U S it shut down the global production system for the for the 737 MAX, shut down the final assembly line here in, in the Seattle area in Renton, and things continue to still be in limbo. And with every passing month now, you know, the, the return to service keeps getting pushed accordingly. And once you, you know, finally see something move, it feels like another milestone or another obstacle gets put in the way here. You know, certainly this has been an unbelievably painful time for the families of the victims just to, to you know, reeling from the loss of their loved ones. You know, it was Ethiopian a year ago and, and uh, Lion Air uh, the October before that, you know, and, and, and you compound that with 
this ongoing process where you know you you, you they have to you know, kind of understand how this unfolds for for themselves for their, their friends and families for all the loved ones that are involved in this and then on top of that you know you've got this economic uncertainty that is spread now across the entire aviation economic ecosystem it's before you even put add in what's been going on with with coronavirus and covid uh, 19 and, and and how that is affecting demand for the airplane so can you separate those two apart but it's just been it, it's really been an unbelievable painful time for all involved so boeing has gone to great lengths to to get the aircraft back in the air the faa has said you know go back and do this again go back and do this again we keep finding additional things the timeline going back to last march was a few weeks then it was some weeks then it became months and now a year later we're looking at a total time of 18 months at this point is there a point of no return i don't know i mean okay so i should say is there a point of no return there is a point of no return. I don't think we're 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 close to it. You know, I think that in the same way that there is a strategic economic incentive for a nation to have an air transport system that's healthy, in terms of when we're talking about the the context of government intervention in the airlines, the same goes for Boeing. Boeing is a strategic asset of the United States government, and there is certainly an incentive to 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 get this done as long as it takes, but the airplane will come back. Not having it come back is not an option for Boeing. And you know, what's the economic environment look like for that? What's the, the reputational environment look like for Boeing? Those are still very open questions. But the airplane, I, I've seen nothing definitively that suggests that, that it will not come back. Let me bring this back around to where we spent the first half or, or- three quarters of the show. When the airplane comes back, just assuming that it does, what are airlines going to do with these airplanes? Assuming they get them back in the second half of the year or start to get them back in the second half of the year. I mean, if we're still dealing with a depressed demand for air travel and all of a sudden there are hundreds more aircraft available. What do airlines do? You just hit the nail on the head as far as the economic challenge. If the grounding was was an earthquake for Boeing, the state of the economy is the tsunami that follows. And so there is an option. I mean, certainly airlines always have the option to defer. They have the option to cancel. They have the option to, you know, you can get rather creative with aircraft transactions. You can do trade-ins. You can find other other users for for the airplanes that that you do have that you need to fill to keep, keep everything flat in terms of you know net change in the size of a fleet we don't know what the economy is going to look like in the back end of this i mean certainly you know we we actually had a at, a, at an analysis on 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 exactly this question just in the last few weeks you know going from you know effectively a scarcity of airplanes in certain regions like the united states you know, where we had Southwest significantly constrained, for example, because they couldn't get airplanes almost overnight, or I'd say it may not be an overnight, but a several week process. The industry had lost, again, this is before all the capacity cuts from the US, uh, had lost uh, an equivalent of a thousand 737 and A320s flying around the world. A thousand. That's before you even talk about the need to get these almost 800 maxes 
back in the sky, or more than 800 maxes back in the sky. These are the forces that are all going to collide on each other. In a lot of respects, it is it is for the for the overall benefit of the industry today, right? That these airplanes are not flooding back in because it would add it would add insult to injury in terms of not needing these airplanes. However, certainly then the question gets put back on Boeing, which is okay, you built all these airplanes. What now? I think having a little more time to get this right, certainly at a time when people are talking about other things other than 737 maxes and a lack of maxes. I mean, you don't want to be in a position where people don't want airplanes. That's the worst thing you can have happen as a as an aircraft manufacturer. So a healthy economic environment, healthy airlines that want to grow or want to replace airplanes is the ideal. We are not there today by any stretch of the imagination. And so what that looks like six months from now, when the max does finally, presumably, begins to come back. These are the big economic questions that are that are surrounding the future of the airplane, the future of the program, and, you know, crucially, the future of Boeing. You say the future of Boeing, and so I want to talk about Boeing's future airplane for a moment. If, when, what that might look like. Because we talked on the on the podcast many, many moons ago about the NMA. And from what we've seen, and and I think you've said said this directly, the NMA is dead. So what's next? Well, I, you know, it's it's interesting. I, I was looking back at a, at, a, at an article I I wrote last, I think it was September, and it was about um, small airplanes. So it wasn't about you know the NMA sized airplane, which was two hundred twenty to two hundred seventy passengers. Or the A321, which is anywhere between 180 to 240 passengers, depending on the the configuration. But smaller airplanes like the A220 and the 737 uh, Max 7, which of which Southwest has bought 30 and deferred about 23 of those till 2023. And so uh, there was a line in the story that I that I'm thinking about a lot since then which said, well, why didn't Southwest just buy a bigger airplane? I was talking to a senior executive at Southwest who who said, well, you don't get religion on airplane size until a downturn. And effectively what he was saying was, it's really good to have 737, 700s because eventually you can fly a smaller airplane to a lot of different places more full than you could a much bigger airplane. That's a, that's an obvious statement, right? But effectively you, you under-optimize at each side to create a stability in your fleet. So the question is, you know, on the opposite side of this, is there just a different a different dynamic in terms of what size airplane airlines need? I mean, look, look at this way. The day before 9/11, Boeing was talking about a sonic cruiser and Airbus was had just launched the A380. So, you think you think about how industry trends can again, come back to our earlier part of the conversation, can be accelerated by by big exogenous events like like 9-11, for example. You know, we went from an era of saying, saying, you know, you need bigger airplanes, you need faster airplanes to saying, well, actually, well, maybe we need much smaller airplanes. And certainly we've seen that trend throughout the last the last 20 years uh, away from the, the biggest and even smallest end, right? Where you kind of get, you know, a bell curve of airplane size shaping up. The question is, does this downturn and how long and, and, and its overall impact on the industry does it affect what size airplane people need? Do you see a move away from A330s to A321XLRs, for example, for, for 787s down to 
what theoretically would be an NMA or a, or a large single aisle, or is or is it even so extreme that you see you know a large what was once large single aisle flying go down to small single aisle flying, depending on on how how the economic environment looks. You know, you need to think about again you, all the assumptions that the world had about the future trajectory of flying. I think are, are are up for grabs. You know, there 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 are, there are going to be people who are going to say, John, look at the trend over over the last the last forty years. It doubles every twenty years. That's the drumbeat. Yes, absolutely. The, are there exogenous shocks in there? Yes, absolutely. But you know how you plan for that over time and seeing what it what it means to grow, I think is going to be the big question on the, on the other side of this this current crisis that we find ourselves in. And figuring out what size airplane that is is going to be really important. And like you said, as time stretches on, this question, you know, uh, goes in some people's minds from when the 737 MAX comes back to if in some cases. And so does it mean a wholesale replacement of the 737? And we've spent this entire uh this entire podcast talking about about all these different forces at play here. And, you know, it cannot kind of be summed up in, you know, the, it's the, it's the, the shruggy emoji, you know, it's like, there is so much uncertainty right now in terms of, in terms of where we are in terms of Boeing, in terms of the economy, in terms of the state of global public health right now, uh, that we don't know what the future looks like. And probably that probably more than anything pushes things out rather than brings them closer. And so we're just going to have to wait and see how this shakes out. But, peering into a crystal ball, this is what the airplane business is all about in terms of seeing these trends and understanding how to ride these waves as best as possible. And that is going to be the the exciting, necessary business of aircraft manufacturers and airlines and their suppliers up and down the industry and what happens next. So you know, stay tuned. I hope we'll have answers soon. But I think, again, more questions are being created by the day than than questions are being answered. Sorry, guys. Well, this was horrifying. <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, to be fair, we, we kind of knew that this wasn't going to be the, the light and, and jolly episode where we have John on and we get to talk about, uh, you know, fun and exciting things. But we do absolutely appreciate your your expertise and your perspective on the industry which is why we bring you on because you teach us things that we did not know and i hope our, our dear listeners have gotten a lot out of this episode where we are the next time we sit down to record in 2 weeks i think is going to be an even much more different place than we are today Things are moving quickly, but I think this gives context to what's happening both in the aviation industry at large and then certainly with what Boeing is doing, you know, at one year on. John Ostrauer, the editor in chief of the Air Current, thank you so much for joining us. Always a pleasure having you on the show. Thanks, guys. Always a pleasure, and, and hopefully a few more answers the next time we have this conversation. Thanks, John. Thanks, John.